Well, good morning. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for your mercy that came through Jesus Christ. Thank you for feeding and nourishing us in, um, in our spirits and in our bodies. We ask, Lord, that you'd be among us and present and help us to continue to um, understand more deeply uh, your work in our lives and um, how you present yourself to us in the mystery of the Lord's Supper. And uh, may it lead us to worship and adore you in even deeper ways. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I didn't know Andrew was going to preach on um, that Revelation 1 passage when I you know, uh, decided to do this Christian basics, and he really touched on a lot of um, parallel ideas about the Lord's Supper, communion, about you know, Christ and his priesthood, and what he came to do and what he continues to do. Um, I did want to touch on, was it John? Last week you had, you had asked about a difference between justification and sanctification. Was that you? Uh, yes. Yeah. Glorification. And glorification being another. So I just wanted to touch on that to lead into sacraments. And so um, if you have the 2 Corinthians 5 verse and the Galatians 4 verse and the Ephesians 2 verse, be ready and I will call on you to read um, those passages. But in justification and sanctification, it is all of grace. Um, it's all God's work in us. Um, and it's by the mediation and merit of Christ alone uh, that the, the solos of the, of the Reformation, um, Luther and his company, they were saying Christ alone, by faith alone. Um, it's, so, so it's all of God's work. It's grace alone. Um, not anything that we do or can conjure up. And, and so justification is being made right with God, being put in right relationship with God, being reconciled, because the narrative of the Bible is that we were created in God's image, good, but that we have fallen into sin. We've, we've curved inwards. Uh, we're, we're, we're not oriented towards pleasing and loving God naturally. Um, we have an inward bent towards preserving ourselves and taking care of our own and um, doubting God's goodness and his promises. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, this passage about being reconciled to him in relationship. So whoever has that passage, could you read that, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is that you? Okay, thanks. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, has, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ was reconciling. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to, to the message of reconciliation. Yes, so reconciliation, we are reconciled now in relationship with God. We are now put in right standing. In other words, we have Christ's own perfect record and his, sanct or his um, atoning death taking care of the bad record that we had accumulated through our sin. So he has um, given us new standing before God. That's what being justified means. Justified, you know, as in like a line lining up with another one. It's being justified correctly. We're now in correct relationship with God through Christ, as Paul said in that passage. Um, and, and we've been more than that. 
We are adopted into God's family. He actually adopts us. He calls us sons and daughters of God. We now belong to him in a new way. Um, and so that's what Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Who has that passage? Would you mind reading that? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Yeah, we now inherit all the riches of God's kingdom that Christ has purchased for us. So we're no longer to be treated as slaves, as workers, earning a wage. Uh, it's not earned. It's just given. It is, it is an inheritance that is passed on from God who is our Father. Um, and so we're included in his family by grace. And that brings us to the Ephesians 2 passage. Um, which talks about the fact that because we belong to God, we, we've been born anew, that we can now, um, be, we grow in our understanding of His work in our lives. Therefore, that's sancti- we begin to be sanctified. Um, we become a little more like Jesus. Um, obviously, there's always a gap because we still have a sinful nature. Um, but let's listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Uh, 1 through 10. This is a little bit longer passage, but I think it's helpful. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming of ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you. Um, This is a beautiful summary of the gospel, um, of the good news that is in Christ, that we are now raised up actually into the heavenly places with God through Christ. Somehow what he has gone ahead to do, where he is interceding at the right hand of the Father right now, we are somehow brought up into that. So we now have a new standing with God in that last passage, that last verse rather, we're God's workmanship created to do good works, to walk in the way of God's righteousness and goodness. And that's what the sanctification process is. And so that's the difference. Justification over here is one-time act of declaration, what God has done to redeem us. He says, you are mine, you are my child. That's a one-time thing. Sanctification is a continuing to walk in the ways in which he has showed us. It is, 
in a sense, living like you belong to the family. You know, you have a family name. And God has a family name, his church, his bride. And, and he calls us um, more and more to look to him for help in life. And that's what sanctification is. Um, it's a slow process. And, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in various ways, like in Mere Christianity. But, you know, if you see a man or hear a man talk and he has foul language, you know, but you, you find out that he's a professing Christian, it could be that you don't know how much worse his language would be if he didn't have Christ. I mean, it could be that sanctification's at work in him, you know. But, but he just hasn't arrived at the place, perhaps, of where you are. Like, everybody has a story. We're all informed by the stories, by the um, environment we grow up in, the family we grow up and how we are raised, everybody starts in a sense at a different place in terms of character. Um, sanctification is going on all the time in those that belong to Christ. And um, it's just a good word. This is the encouragement Paul gives us. We, we should be working out our salvation in a sense. Um, it should become evident in various places in our lives. And part of that is evidenced, I think, really by struggle. It's not just, oh, look, I'm victorious and I've overcome that. But it's, oh, I'm looking to God every day uh, because I'm struggling. I mean, you know, the picture of somebody with an addiction is a beautiful picture, actually, for all of us because we're all addicted to all sorts of things that we don't really label addiction always. But the person who has to wake up every day and say, if, if I go to the bottle, <laughs> if, if I go to the Internet, if I do these things unchecked, um, I can end up right back in the place where I was. But by God's grace, every day we're struggling and fighting against it. That's, that's how sanctification is working itself out in the life of the believer and corporately in the life of the church. Um, and so I hope that's a little bit helpful because you had asked about that last week, John. Um, and, and that leads us, though, to this idea of how God does sustain us and nourish us, the, the sacraments that we talked about, communion last week and uh, the Lord's Supper now. Um, sacraments are their outward signs. They are outward and visible signs, tangible means of God's grace, whereby inward reality, spiritual reality, is being communicated and participated in by us. Um, and so this, this really is helpful, especially against a dualistic or Gnostic tendency that um, even uh, Christians can sometimes have because it, it utilizes the idea that we are embodied creatures. We are bodies and souls, you know. Uh, we, we are not just um, spirits that are waiting to be released from the container of the body um, to be raised up to this higher place. That was kind of a a Greek Gnostic idea um, that um, goes back to Plato and thinking about forms uh, versus um, reality. And um, the, the sacraments are God communicating to us, not just by word, but also in tangible ways. You know, we, you feel the water of baptism. We can see it. We taste the, the bread and the wine. Uh, we, are, we are holding it with our hands. Um, and th this is helping to reintroduce to us the idea that God is breaking forth in new creation. When Jesus was raised from the dead, a new world started. And it began with his resurrection because it's pointing to him making all things new. And so when we come to the communion rail, we are coming recognizing that everything that is broken now will one day be redeemed. Uh, he, he is making all things new now. And so the church as a Christian community has always come together and gathered around 
the Lord's Supper. Um, in Acts 2, we see the apostles um, and, and all the believers getting together. He says, um, Luke records in Acts 2, that they were uh, breaking bread and sharing in fellowship. Um, and by breaking bread, he, wa- he was meaning eating together, but he was also talking about the Lord's Supper, that they were, they were repeating what their Lord Jesus had told them to do. He commanded them to do this. And so um, that's what we'll look at first is uh, what Christ did command them to do. So in Luke 22, 14 through 19, um, this is instituted by Christ uh, himself at his Passover, or, or at the Pass- time of the Passover, right before he was betrayed. Um, who has Luke 22? Would you be able to read that for us? Sermon. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Thank you. So, so there, he's with his disciples there around the table, and this is his. He knows this is his last meal. Uh, they're not quite aware of that yet, but he he institutes this meal as a way of communicating to them. Even even as he's doing it, he says, "This is in the new covenant in my blood." Um, of course, after the fact, it's only after the fact that the apostles go, oh, that was about his death. I mean, you see all through the Gospels, Jesus keeps telling them, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. I will be killed. And, you know, and you will deny me. You know, and Peter's going, oh, no, God, not me. I won't deny you. you know? And yet all that happens. And so this is foreshadowing Jesus' death. And so that's why he commands them to do this whenever you're together in remembrance of me. Um, this, is, this is a meal in which we are to remember the passion of Christ, remember the suffering death that he um, endured on our behalf. Um, and that's certainly communicated in the liturgy, isn't it? Um, as we, we basically read or hear the priest say much of what was just read out of Luke, um, you know, that that this took place in a historical context, and the church continues to remember that. Um, and Paul gives some instructions to us in 1 Corinthians 11, um, verses 23 through 26. Would you read that for us? Um, <clears throat> okay. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a man with far greater labor, far more imprisonment, with countless beatings, and often near death. Hold on. 
Are you in 1 Corinthians 11? Is it 1 Corinthians or are you in 2 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians, you're right. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that would be edifying as well, you know? That's right, yeah, no. No, that's, that is an easy uh, confusion to make there. Yeah, this is 1 Corinthians 11. It's page 821 in these Bibles. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the right, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, thank you. And that is, there is a um, future orientation to the Lord's Supper. You're proclaiming something until he returns again. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Um, and we're, we're actually enacting that um, each week when we have communion together. And we are proclaiming something to ourselves, being reminded of something that is true, that is bigger than us. Um, and we're, we're telling that to one another as we enact that. And we're telling that to the world that ultimately evil doesn't win. <laughs> ultimately, the sadness and confusion and brokenness that is in the world is not the end of the story. That there, there is something greater. It's what Christ has instituted in his life, death, and resurrection. And he is coming back. He is returning in bodily form to bring the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and this is a, a means of fellowshipping with one another and with God himself. We are meet, he is meeting with his people in communion. Um, there is this partaking of life that's happening, a fellowship. Um, that's what, when you call it communion, you know, to commune with someone. It is, there's something intimate about it. It's... Um, it's you know just like sharing an intimate meal with someone. Um, the Lord's Supper is it's intended to be of consequence to us. You know not just going through the motions, but really recognizing okay, something I significant is happening. Yes. When I was a little boy growing up in this church, and when I first started acting like it was understood. I mean, it was just part of, I think it was tradition. I don't think it was kind of law or anything, but there was just tradition that when you had communion, when you were going to take communion, you didn't eat anything like have breakfast ahead of time. Wow. Didn't do it. I mean, in fact, John Turner was a, was a priest at that time, and he used to take a whole coop down for breakfast. Uh-huh. Wow. So I just wonder, what, is that, was that just a tradition? I mean, other, other tradition That's we're definitely about. a Catholic tradition. You can't have communion you're hungry. <laughs> you're hungry. I'm just curious whether this is theological or whether it's just because there's customs. It's like back in those days, it was a custom to eat like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Standard operating procedure. Sure. Yes. Well, well, the beautiful thing about the gospel is it accommodates the cultures. You know, when and and this is a beautiful thing I've found about the Anglican tradition is it's not always it's not starting from a point of always. Well, what does the Bible explicitly say, and let's only do those things. It's actually starting from, you know, let's get the core of what the Bible, what Scripture teaches us, but we can't do anything that goes against Scripture. You know, we, we would not do that. If Scripture forbids something or commands not to do something, that is off limits and out of bounds. Um, but there, there is some... The, the, the gospel does accommodate to cultures in appropriate ways. So things like that can arise, where yeah, women wearing hats... Or, yeah, I, th- that's not something that the Christian church in all times and all places has practiced. But I, I think it would be... I don't think it contradicts scripture in any way um, but I, I'm not sure I'm not familiar with that practice so I don't know th- I'm sure it has theological tenets I mean I think everything is theological at the end of the day but no 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 it is not canon law in the Episcopal Church yes well the first the first Lord's Supper first communion was scripturally in conjunction with a meal. It It was a meal, correct. Yes. And in fact, the early Christian church, oftentimes they would have these agape feasts, they would call them. Agape is the Greek word for love. They would call it a love feast. And they would get together and they they would do these kinds of words of institution, but they would share a meal. And there's still Christian communities today who do that as their, that's their Eucharistic supper. Um, it's more than just a you know a styrofoam wafer and a sip of juice or wine, um, and so so it, I think that's become expressed in different ways. Um, but getting down to the fundamentals of what it is, Jesus breaks bread. He says, "This is my body," and I'm going to get to some different views of the Lord's Supper if we have time, um, which we're not going to have time. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> so, so like uh, Lutherans, they believe because Jesus says, "This is my body," um, they believe it, they don't believe what Catholics believe about it that ontologically this bread actually is the body of Christ. But they say, "But somehow Jesus says this is my body," so. Their view is called consubstantiation, not transubstantiation. So it doesn't transform into the body of Christ, but somehow Christ is present within and under the elements. And it's mysterious, but he is there. The, the, the Anglican tradition and what, what the Advent's view is on this, I think I can speak to this, is that um, Christ is spiritually present in the meal. And it's John Calvin really articulated this well, talking about we are brought up and raised up into the heavenlies with Christ at the meal. Uh, so we're, 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 in a sense, spiritually speaking, transported into God's very presence. It's like an interlocking of heaven and earth in that place. You know, the, the glory of God is present in the meal. Um, so something is happening. It's mysterious. And John Calvin would actually say... Um, it, it's, it's better experienced than explained. And, and I think there's something to that because uh, we can't at the end of the day explain the, um, the presence of Christ in something. You know, he's, he's present in his word being read. He's present. He, the Lord inhabits the praises of his people is what scripture tells us. 
So when we're singing, he is inhabiting that in some way. I mean, there, there's a mystical idea to that, but it's the interlocking of heaven and earth. You know, we're not just doing an earthy, um, physical act when we're taking the Lord's Supper. There is something more deeply meaningful to it. And when you think about what it means to be human, what it means to be made in God's image, the reason we have poets and playwrights and artists is because they help to um, give word and picture to greater realities that we have trouble expressing ourselves. Things like love. The, mo the most important things about being a human, you can't just explain away or scientifically describe, you know, um, as having certain characteristics. We can hint at it and touch at it, but it's a little more like pornography. You know it when you see it. You know, the definition, uh, that famous line. Um, and so, um, so in terms of what's happening in the Lord's Supper, Scriptures teach, t teaches us that we are to do it, that Christ is present in the meal with us, that we are participating, we are spiritually raised up into the heavenly places. That was the Ephesians 2 passage we read. Um, so there is something significant happening, and it echoes what God had done for his people in the Exodus. He gave them this Passover meal, and it was to celebrate and commemorate what God was doing and bringing great deliverance and freedom. And so he had them do this meal, and they did it every year. And that was the very meal that Jesus was sharing with his disciples. It was at the time of the Passover. Um, and, and God even told his people, when your children ask you, what does this mean? He said, you are to tell them, the Lord our God, when we were slaves in Egypt, he brought us out through the Red Sea. You're to tell them the story. And this is the story that we are living into. So baptism initiates us into that story makes us a part of God's covenant people. And the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, is the place where we continue to gather around. It's like the centerpiece of what it means to belong to God's family, that we feed on him by faith. With thanksgiving, we remember the story, the story that's becoming interwoven into our collective memory and individually into our own small stories, that God is redeeming us through Christ. He is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. Um, and so this is, we're proclaiming freedom, we're proclaiming deliverance. Sin no longer has the dominion that it once had because Christ has broken it for us. And we are feeding on him and trusting him again. This is, this is in essence, an altar call. You know, in, in, the, in the kind of Southern Baptist tradition of who wants to receive Jesus, raise your hand or come up front and, and pray to receive Christ. That is a really good practice, to pray and proclaim Christ. But I think what is a better practice is come forward and receive and be nourished by God himself at this table. This is a place where you come and you repent. That's why, that's why we say we're not worthy, Lord, to partake of this. We're not coming because of our own righteousness. We're coming because of what Christ has done. And that's the beauty of what the Lord's Supper is for us. It's, it's meant to be a sustainer and a nourisher. So God's people, Exodus, they're delivered. They continue to practice this meal every year, the Passover. But they were also fed and nourished in the desert. Do you remember how? In the wilderness? God provided food for them out of the sky. Manna from heaven, right? Um, and that is uh, God sustained them throughout their wilderness journey for 40 years. Um, and this is meant to reflect that in a sense 
for us as God's people today. He is spiritually nourishing and feeding us. I gave somebody a John 6 passage. We won't read it, but um, Jesus fed the 5,000, and then he started explaining what it meant, and people were really baffled because he said, I am bread from heaven. You must, anyone who wants to participate in my life has to feed on my flesh and drink my blood. And people walked away. They went, this guy's crazy. You know? But, that's, but the reality of being a Christian means we're feeding, we are plugged into the, um, into the life source of Jesus. He is our life source and our strength, and we need to be nourished by him every day. That's why he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And in order to be living branches, we have to be plugged into the true vine. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's through the Lord's Supper that's one means by which he communicates to us. Um, it's a means of grace. It's meant to be an, a gracious invitation and offering to us. And we are wise to receive it in humility and uh, with earnestness anticipate and hope and long for his kingdom to come more fully in our own lives and in our corporate community life and in the whole world, so that the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And um, the Lord's Supper is kind of a, it's anticipating that final banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where we'll all be gathered before God's throne. And that is going to be a great and wonderful feast. That will be the Lord's Supper to end all Lord's Suppers. Uh, we will no longer need to um, be reminded of the story that God has been writing um, because we will be living in it more fully. But that in no way is sufficient for the topic, but um, unfortunately we are out of time here. Um, Lord be with you. May you go in his peace to love and serve the Lord. And, and I would certainly...